This morning we are continuing in our series entitled The Church. And today we're going to be looking into part four entitled Better Together. And so I would ask you to bow with me once more as we look into God's word. Father in heaven, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your presence here this morning. Thank you that you are so ready and willing to meet with us and to speak to us through your word. And I ask that you would speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 4. And there we're going to be looking at verses 23 to 27. Bert read this passage for us a little bit earlier on. And as you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of context. We are jumping in near the end of a long story, a chain of events that begins back in Acts chapter 3 and verse 1. Acts chapter 3 verse 1, we see Peter and John visit the temple and famously they encounter a crippled beggar sitting at the temple gates and he's begging for money. But Peter and John say to the beggar, silver and gold have we none, but such as we have we give to you. And they say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the text says the man not only got up, he jumped up. His legs are healed instantly. He jumped up. This man is over 40 years old. The text tells us he jumps up. He enters the temple courtyard for perhaps the first time in his life. And he's so overjoyed. The text says he is jumping. He is leaping. And he is shouting for joy to the Lord. Praising him for this miraculous healing. This, of course, draws a lot of attention. Here's this guy making a ruckus in church. You're supposed to be quiet in church, reverential, not too many hallelujahs, right? This is a place of reverential praying. But here's a man bubbling over with joy at what God has just done in his life. And at first they're shushing him, but then they realize, who is this man we're shushing? And it turns out, that's the beggar. That's the guy we passed on the way in. And word begins to spread that this man has been healed. Well, eventually, long, long story short, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they arrest Peter and John. They throw them into jail overnight just to send the message that they mean business. Then they haul them before the Sanhedrin the next morning. That's the the ruling uh, religious class, which included the Pharisees, the high priests, uh, and, and anyone else who was experts in the law were in this ruling class, the Sanhedrin. So this is a very intimidating body to come before because you've got to remember, these, this isn't just like the church leadership. They were the authorities. They had temple guards. They had the ability to imprison. They even had the ability to recommend, as they did with Jesus, death. And they could, they could do all of these things. They had tremendous power and authority. And so here, Peter and John, they've spent the night in prison. They're dragged before the Sanhedrin, and they order them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. And to this, Peter and John replied, Acts 4, 19 and 20, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Talk about courage. We just talked about Esther's courage. Look at the courage of Peter and John. They're before the Sanhedrin with all the authority. They've spent the night in prison and they say, you judge. Better to obey you or God. And look at the little dig in there too. You know what they're saying? They're saying, you don't speak for God. 
And, th- and this is the religious leaders they're talking to here. So this is an insult right in their faces. You judge, is it better to obey you or God because you don't speak on God's behalf? They don't like this. They continue to threaten them that if they will not be silent, worse things are going to happen to them. But even so, the Sanhedrin are perplexed because Peter and John have such boldness and they recognize, the text says, that they had been with Jesus. And so with the threats leveled, they let them go. And then we pick up the story in Acts 4.23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now, as uh, Captain Obvious would say, they've got a problem. Not just a problem, it's a big problem. The closest equivalent I could think of is if this week I were to be arrested by the police, told that preaching about Jesus is no longer allowed in Canada, it's no longer okay to do it, but that if I do, They'll be, they'll be watching, they'll be listening, and if I do, I will be arrested, thrown into prison, and worse. If that were to happen this week, what would I do? Would we have church next Sunday? Would I be here? Would you be here? This was the exact problem that Peter and John and the brand new church in Jerusalem faced. Only a couple months, you've got to remember how short this time span is. This is only a couple of months after Jesus was cru- crucified. Only a few weeks after the church was birthed when the Holy Spirit descended at Pentecost. So this is all happening rapidly. And now there's this tremendous threat. You speak, you preach in the name of Jesus Christ, and that's it. What would they do? How would they respond to their troubles? Well, we can ask the same question today. Now, thankfully, I have not yet been told that preaching in Jesus' name is illegal, But there are many places, as we saw earlier this morning, there are many places in the world that it is. Fifty-some countries where preaching the name of Jesus Christ can get you in very big trouble. And there's no denying, as we look around, if if you pay any attention to the news, we are living in troubled times. We are living in an ever increasingly troubled world. And just... Over a very short span of time, the past couple of weeks, I've had multiple different people phrase the same sort of question to me. Do you think we're getting close to the end times? Do you think we're getting close to Jesus' return? And to that question, I almost always start with the reply, well, we're closer today than we were yesterday. That's always my disclaimer. I start there. And of course, almost all people of all ages have wondered the same thing as they've looked at the troubles in their day. And and all people, of course, the the believing people of the church, have always wondered, are we the generation that will see Jesus return? So we're not new in this regard. Now, they've wondered this, but one of the unique things about our age, our generation, is that for the first time in history, via modern technology, the satellite, the internet, we are made instantly aware of not just some, but almost all of the world's problems and troubles simultaneously. We have this inundation, this flood of of bad news coming at us constantly from all directions almost the moment it happens. You know, whether it's an earthquake in, in Tibet, Mexico City, all the hurricanes, all the different things happening, natural disasters, we're made aware of them almost instantly. And when we compare this to the, the information of the signs that Jesus foretold would precipitate the end, 
that he gave to his disciples in Matthew 24. He said that these signs, like labor pains, like a woman in labor, they would increase in frequency and intensity closer to the end. So he said these signs will will ramp up as you get closer. So watch out for these things. And here are some of the signs that Jesus gave. He said there would be false teachers deceiving many. He said that there would be wars and rumors of wars. He said that there would be earthquakes, famines, the persecution of Christians, believers turning away from the faith, and perhaps most telling of all in Matthew uh, 24, verse 12, Jesus said, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most, not all, but most, would grow cold. And it just seems to me that everywhere we look, wickedness is increasing, and love, you know, agape love, the kind that God gives, the unconditional sort of love, that love is growing cold. And we look around, and there's this ever-increasing political, cultural, and spiritual divide taking place all around us. In the United States, political commentators are now talking openly about the possibility of civil war. Terrorist attacks are commonplace. Hurricanes, floods, earthquakes, and fires are fixtures on the news. Then there's Iran, who has vowed to wipe Israel off the map and have nearly achieved the weapons to try. Not to mention the so-called rocket man who's threatening to lob nuclear missiles in our direction. And of course, all of these... uh, big news items, we'll call them, all of these are over and above in addition to our personal problems and challenges that we all face in our day-to-day lives. Whether we have struggles at home or at work, perhaps in a marriage or in a broken friendship, perhaps with illness or anxiety or with finances, with children, with depression, failure or loneliness, these are things that we all in varying ways may be grappling with, whatever you're facing at the moment. And so as we look at this big ball of trouble, all of these issues that we're facing, how do we respond? Where can we find sanctuary from all of the troubles both without in the big world sphere and the troubles within in our own personal lives? Where can we turn for sanctuary? Well, here's one solution I found offered. I just read an article entitled, and I quote, Hollywood. A Sanctuary in Troubled Times. (laughs) I'm not making this up. It wasn't satire. In the article, I had to read it after seeing that headline, a senior media analyst for Comscore said, quote, Movie theaters have always provided sanctuary during our hardest periods. The lights go down and you check out of real-world troubles. And to that I say, really? Really? Like, is that... Is that the best the world has to offer? A little escapism? You know, that we can just immerse our troubles and put them to the side and dive into the world of a movie for a couple of hours and, you know, it's sanctuary. I can get away. And admittedly, we all enjoy doing that from time to time where we just got to put our issues to the side and maybe get into a book or, or watch a movie and we all do it from time to time. But if that's all we've got, the problem is when the lights come back up, the movie's over, you close the book, nothing has changed. Nothing's changed. You're still facing the exact same issues and troubles as before. And this is where the ecclesia 
the body of Christ, the gathering of believers, the church. This is where we come into play. What is this place called? Where we are in this morning, what do we call it? What do we call it? What's this room called? The sanctuary. I see people mouthing it. No one wanted to speak in the sanctuary. You're allowed to speak if I ask a question. It's okay. We're in the sanctuary. And there's a very specific reason we call it that. Of course, it can go all the way back to the the temple and the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary of God. But here we are in a place we call this sanctuary. And that means something. It means this is the sanctuary from all of the crazy chaos of the world around us. We come here to the sanctuary before God. And whatever our burdens are, whatever the troubles are out there, when we bring them in here to the sanctuary, we're coming to a place where where not only are we finding escape or diversion, but when we leave, something I hope and pray every week has changed. And we're going to get into that a little bit more. Back to Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 24. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Take note. Peter and John have have been threatened, but they don't run and hide. No, they go back to their own people. That's the church. They didn't have even a term for it then yet. They come back to the church, and the very first thing the gathering of believers, the church does, is they call a committee meeting to talk through the issues and how they're going to respond. Right? That's what they did. Is that what the text says? No, you guys caught me, and some people are looking at me funny. No, they didn't call a committee meeting to decide. Maybe they did that after. The first thing they do is they call a prayer meeting. It says they they come together. They lift their voices together in prayer to God. I want you to highlight that word together. They didn't all say, I'm going to go home and pray by myself. No, they came together. They lifted their voices as one. And this is why God has drawn us here together this morning. God knows we are better together. We are better together. As my prof always drummed into our heads, we are created for community. We are not created to just follow Jesus in isolation. No, we are created to follow Jesus together. For it is here in the body, the church, that in the face of all of the world's troubles out there and our own problems in here, we together, we turn in and we look up. I'm going to say that again. We turn in and we look up. Like a flock of sheep under attack by a wolf. The wolf is trying to separate the flock. He wants to get one of the sheep darting off on the side so that Mr. Wolf can have a snack. You know, big bad Mr. Wolf can have a lunch. And I'm looking at Peter right now. (laughs) That joke, I'm, I'm sorry, Peter. Never gets old. So Mr. Wolf is hungry. He's trying to, to separate the sheep. He's trying to, to, get them to, get, to get them apart. Easy prey. But what does the shepherd train the sheep to do when under attack? My children's storybook teaches the, the words in, uh, in Hebrews. Tahu, tahu, he would call out in Hebrew. That's my butchered Hebrew, but you don't know any better. And so he'd, he'd call out tahu, and the sheep, even under attack, their instinct is to run and to scatter. They hear the shepherd's voice, and they bunch up. They pull in tighter and tighter. They turn in towards each other. 
And, and the, the wolf can nip at their flanks and bite at their heels, but bunched up, they are not separated. They are not easy prey for the enemy. They turn in, and they look up towards the shepherd. There's a story told by Todd Coggett, a minister from Indiana, of how he grew up on a free-range pig farm many, many years ago where they raised about 1,000 pigs a year. And these weren't your nice uh, pigs that you see in the, the pig barns today, the indoor barns. No, these were outdoor pigs. They were as wild as could be with thick fur coats, many of them topping six to 700 pounds in weight. And as a young man, his job, his job was that long before the sun was up, he would rise each morning, and young Todd would walk out into that field with the buckets of slop to feed the pigs. And when he would go out, he always hoped and prayed they would scatter before him because he didn't want to be anywhere near these dangerous pigs. But one morning, as he's carrying the buckets of slop out into the field, this brave little piglet, who doesn't really know any better, comes up to investigate. And he starts gnawing on his boot. And so this piglet's so cute, Todd scoops over, he picks this piglet up to give it a little pet and a scratch behind the ears, but all too soon, the little oinker, he wanted down, and he starts squealing and squirming, and, and Todd holds on to him a little tighter and says, no, I'm not letting you go until I'm ready to put you down. And while at that moment, he says, the piglet let out such a high-pitched shriek, it made his ears ring, and he just, the thing bolted right out of his arms. And with about two seconds, over 30 mama sows, weighing five to 600, maybe 700 pounds each, were charging towards him from all directions. Dropping this this shrieking piglet, Todd Todd ran for his life for the fence. And with these sows on his tail, he dove over just in the nick of time. And all the mama sows were on the other side of that fence, snorting and walking back and forth, just daring him to come back over and mess with one of their babies. And the point he makes is that that little piglet, he knew he wasn't alone. And he knew that with just one shriek, one call, he would have more help coming to his aid than he needed. And so too today, we are not alone. With just one squeal, or rather one prayer, I should say, one call, one lifting our voices together, we discover that all of heaven's resources are at our disposal. And like those mama sows come running, God comes running. In fact, he doesn't even have to run that far because he's never been far away to begin with. He's always been right there beside us. He's an ever-present help in times of trouble if we but call out to him. That is what the early church did. They turned in and they looked up and they called out, Oh Lord, help us. What do we do? Now let's look at their prayer. Verses 24 to 30. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And this is their prayer. And I want you to take note of a few things. 
The first few verses sound as though they're simply reminding God of what he's already done. But does God need reminding of what he's already done? Do you think God forgets? Oh yeah, I did do that. No, we're not informing God of anything. He is sovereign. He knows all things. What they are doing in the first part of this prayer is they are reminding themselves of what God has already done. They remind themselves that God is the creator of everything. Second, they remind themselves that though the nations rage and oppose God, it's not a new problem. It was going on from David's time. It was going on long before. This is not a new problem. Third, they remind themselves that all of the enemy's conspiracies against Jesus actually played right into God's eternal plan. They remind themselves that what had looked like a tragedy upon the cross turned into a triumph from the grave. And then having sufficiently reminded themselves of the great God and Father that they were praying to, then they made their request. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. What an incredible prayer. I mean, look at the prayer. What would you be praying in this moment? Lord, consider their threats and smite them. Right? Something like that. Lord, consider their threats and silence them. Get rid of them. Transform them. Do something to them. But no, they don't even pray about them. Who do they pray about? They pray about themselves. Lord, consider their threats and give us greater boldness. You see, so often in our prayers, we ask God to change our circumstances. When the better prayer would be, Lord, change me. Lord, change me. Lord, when the world is telling me to be silent about Jesus, grant me greater boldness to keep speaking his name. When my enemy is uttering threats, Lord, give me power to keep loving that enemy in Jesus' name. When my critics are cutting me with their words, Lord, give me the power to forgive again and again. Lord, when the world looks like it wants to tear itself apart, help me to remember and keep declaring to anyone that will listen that in Jesus' name there is healing, there is hope, and there is power. And that one day soon, he is coming back. And he will make all things new again. And then it will all make sense. Everything will be put in perspective. What all of this was for, where it looks like the enemy's winning, where the devil's having his way in the world, and we will see, no, all along, he was playing right into God's plan. Because in the end, he's going to pull it all off, and we're going to get to a front row seat to the victory party. And so let me challenge you with this. In the face of your circumstances, whatever you're facing, start adjusting your prayers from, Lord, change the world, change that person, you know, smite them, to, Lord, change me. Lord, embolden me, empower me. May our our prayer as the church be, Lord, empower us that we might change the world through the power of Jesus' name. This is what the first church did. And let's look at what happened. Verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. I love that. It was shaken. How? We don't know. Did the windows rattle? They probably didn't have windows. You know, 
but it shook. There was a mighty move of God, and they felt it. It was visceral. The place was shaken, and then look at the, the outpouring. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Incredible. God answered their prayer. They were filled anew with the power of the Spirit, and they spoke the word boldly. And I love the next verse. It says, And all the believers were one in heart and mind. This work of the Spirit brought them together in oneness, in heart and mind. And then it shows in the verses to follow how that manifests itself through caring for one another, how they brought everything together in such a way that no one went without everyone was cared for. They were one in heart and mind. My friends, the same God that they prayed to nearly 2,000 years ago is the same today. He hasn't changed. God's word declares he is the same yesterday, today, and forever The God they prayed to is the God we have been praying to this morning. And the same boldness and the power that was available to them is available to us today because it is the same Spirit at work within us. And the Spirit won't always reveal himself in the same way or in the same manner in all times and ages, but he will work. And the work of the Holy Spirit within us today is just as real as it was then. And so whatever troubles, trials, or tribulations we are facing today, he can and will empower us to overcome. And then we find in each other as the church the strength to keep moving ahead in unity and in love. I said before about the news headlines and how troubling they can be, and if you've looked at the news headlines, you will have seen that exactly one week ago today, In a sleepy, small country church of about 50 members near Nashville, Tennessee, the Burnett Chapel Church of Christ had just finished their Sunday morning worship service. When 25-year-old Emmanuel Sampson, wearing a mask, wearing a tactical vest, walked into the foyer of that church with two guns and began shooting people indiscriminately. The church usher, a 22-year-old man named Caleb Engel, confronted the gunman, and during the struggle, Engel was pistol-whipped across the head, receiving a severe head wound. But in the altercation, the gunman accidentally shot himself. The wound sent Samson to the floor, and Engel, despite his head injuries, ran out to his car in the parking lot, retrieved a pistol. He then held Samson at gunpoint until police arrived. The aftermath revealed that 39-year-old Melanie Smith was dead in the parking lot. Six others wounded inside the church, including the pastor who was shot in the chest. This happened exactly one week ago. How did the church respond to this? How did they respond to this hate-fueled violence towards them, unprovoked? They turned in, and they looked up. They called a prayer vigil. They came together around the grieving families. And what impressed me most was what Robert Ingalls said in his statement, and I read, quote, I've been going to this church my whole life since I was a small child. I would never, ever have thought something like this would have happened. I ask everyone to pray for the victims, family members of the victims, our church community. Please pray for healing. Also, please pray for the shooter, the shooter's family and friends. They are hurting as well. I pray that through all of this, the people will come to know Christ. And I ask our nation to reflect on Romans 8 verse 31 If God is for us, who can be against us? 
What a profound statement. To ask that not only would we pray for the victims and the church family, but that we would pray for the shooter and that he would come to know Christ. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the love of Christ at work within that young man's life to love not only his friends, but his enemies. And in that, we hear the echoes of Jesus on the cross when looking down at those Roman centurions and beyond them, the Pharisees who had conspired for his death, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so this morning, as we approach the communion table, this is what we remember. This is what we remind ourselves of, and this is what we celebrate. That though we are all deserving of God's wrath, through Jesus' blood, we receive grace. That though this world is filled with so much hate, by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we can be filled with love and respond to that hatred with Love, just like Caleb Engel did. A man who sought to take his life, he said, pray for him that he might receive Christ. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. And though Satan, through these troubled times, is trying to divide and devour us, as Jesus flocked the church, may we turn in and look up and call out, to our Lord, our refuge, our strength, and our ever-present help in times of trouble. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this morning we too need to remind ourselves of what you have already done on our behalf. That because of our sin, we were so far separated from you that We are in the classification of enemies, those deserving of judgment and wrath. But because of your great love towards us, your creation, you sent Jesus, your son, to this earth to take that judgment on himself, in our place, to take the wrath we deserved on his own shoulders so that by his stripes we can be healed, so that we can be right with you. And so, Lord, this morning, we lift up that small church at Nashville. We lift up those who are wounded and grieving and in shock. And, Lord, we lift up Caleb Engel. We pray for healing on him and his family. But, Lord, as he requested, we also lift up the man who perpetrated this act of hate and violence. And we pray, Lord, that through the power of your Spirit, you would bring him to salvation through Jesus Christ, not because he is deserving but because you are merciful and you delight in saving sinners. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do so for your glory and to show him mercy. And, Lord, we pray for our nations in these troubled times that though in this world we will have trouble, may we take heart because you have overcome the world and greater are you who is in us than he who is in the world. And so, Father, we see in these times your hand at work that, yes, these things must come to pass, But you are coming soon, and you will make all things new again. And we look forward to that day, Lord. And until that day, we agree with the apostles. Give us greater boldness 
in the times we are facing to continue to speak about you, your power, and your great love, no matter what. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This